Tonight we're going to continue down our, our teachings going through the Bible. And uh, tonight's message is on the, the book of Esther. You know, and uh, Esther was set in this time frame after they've been exiled, but it's kind of flip-flopping things. You know, as I've been studying this, you know, as I was saying last week, you know, that we talked about Chronicles a few weeks ago, and that was really the, the end of the story as far as the Old Testament is concerned. And um, as I'm studying this, I'm really starting to see how all these things are layered in such a way that I, I've never really recognized before until I started to really, you know, teach in this way. You know, I ordered a bunch of resources. I got a Bible that's chronologically in order, so it shows me, you know, which books were before other books, and I got a timeline, and I got this, and I got that, to try to help me see the, the bigger picture. <clears throat> because technically, the book of Esther happened before the book of Nehemiah, which is the book of Nehemiah that is what we talked about last week, but it was after the book of Ezra. So it's kind of snuck smack dab in the middle of these two, but because Ezra and Nehemiah was considered maybe one book, but it was on kind of two scrolls, so it became two books in our Bible, but it was really considered one book. So they put Esther after that one book, even though it's two books in our Bible, even though it kind of is sandwiched in the middle of the two. So it's really about a 100 years after the exile. So Jeremiah's prophecy happens about 70 years, you know, comes to fruition when they find the scroll that says, you know, Jeremiah said that we're going to go back into Jerusalem. And Cyprus paid for that journey, you know, and that's when Zerubbabel went in. And then 60 years later, that's when Ezra goes in, you know. So this is kind of right in the middle of what's happening and what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. You know, and there's, you know, a couple of main characters in this book, you know, and Esther being one since the book is written after her, but her name was really Hadassah. Hadassah was her Jewish name. Esther was her name that was given to her by the Babylonians. You know, and Mordecai was her uncle. It doesn't really say where her parents were. Maybe they didn't make it, you know, out of the exile because a lot of people died. A lot of people got left behind, you know, so it's very likely that Mordecai took on Esther and adopted her so that she didn't get swept into, you know, the the pain and the agony of what was going on around him. Now, this is a very unique book in the sense, considering it's in the Bible, and yet it does not mention God once. You know, so we're like, wait a minute, how can there be a book in the Bible that doesn't really mention God, but yet we see God moving through the entire book? <clears throat> you know, we see his purposes playing out. We see how these things are, are at play. You know, there's a movie out. It's called One Night with a King. It came out several years ago. It's actually an amazing movie. Um, so if you want to really see what this book is all about, you know, I'm pretty sure that it's on YouTube. I don't even think you have to pay for it anymore. So you can kind of watch One Night with a King. <clears throat> and this, basically, this story unfolds before you. But basically, the, the, the book starts with a party. You know, Xerxes, Artaxerxes is the king. And he's kind of showing off. And he's kind of showing everybody how rich he is. So he decides to throw like a party that's like six months long. And he's paying for everything. He's paying for the food. He's paying for the banquets. All their... The richity rich and famouses from all over the place are coming so he can show off, you know, in a sense and, 
you know, it's just basically a drunken, you know, party, drunken feast, you know, and um, towards the end of this, you know, he's trying to show off again, so he, you know, summons his wife, you know, and she's not real happy about this, you know, and um, he summons his wife. And he demands that the, the queen come and show off her, her beauty. But she refuses to embrace this. Now, most likely, he's summoning her and probably wearing some very, you know, skimpy clothing. Or maybe none at all. It's hard to say. Because if she's embarrassed to come, you know, in front of everybody, most likely he was going to be having her wear next to nothing. Because he wanted to show her off in, in her beauty and her sexuality and she refuses which then embarrasses him you know and then in front of everybody he's got to save face you know and he listens to his counselors so he basically banishes his wife because if he allows this woman to stand up to him that this is going to rain you know havoc in the in the kingdom you know the other wives are going to begin to stand up against their husbands and it's okay because the king allowed it so he's basically putting his foot down and and banishing her, which, you know, she could have been killed, she could have been exiled, she could have been just stripped clean and just released, she could have been put into a harem, she could have been put into prostitution. It doesn't really give us a clear understanding of where she goes. It just says that she's kind of banished, you know, in a sense. So now he needs a new wife. So they basically put these decrees up and they start summoning all the young virgins of the territory. You know, and the the guards and, and different people are going around and they're just noticing women that are beautiful and finding out who they are or whatever. And they basically start taking all these women, you know, and they really don't have a choice. You know, you're coming one way or another, you know, and and Mordecai, you know, feared that they were going to take his his niece, Hadassah. So as they were coming, he warns her and says, don't let them know that you're a Hebrew and use your Babylonian name, you know, and, you know, she basically says that her name is Esther to kind of fit in because there's a lot of mixture in this city because, you know, Jeremiah prophesied that they were going to go into exile and basically establish yourself, build homes, build your families, you know, so this is roughly a hundred years after that, you know, had taken place. So this is generations after generations. So they're pretty much established in these Babylonian cities you know, and they've been living that way their whole entire lives. You know, Mordecai most was definitely, you know, born there. Hadassah was probably born there. You know, and we we don't really know their backstory very much, but we we know that they have been living in this way for quite some time. You know, and uh, because she's Jewish, they're afraid that they might, you know, just throw her in a harem or get, you know, put in some sort of in a horrible situation, so they hide her identity. But right about this time, you know, as Esther gets kind of ushered away, you know, and they put all these different girls and kind of lock them away so that nobody can get to them. And they put all these eunuchs around them, you know, to guard them, you know, and basically a eunuch for people that don't really know is that it's a man who'd had his manhood taken off, you know, in that way that they couldn't violate these women, that way that it was just for the king to do what he'd please with them, you know, so they had guards, 
you know, around him, around them all. You know, but then as Mordecai is kind of in the mix of all this, he begins to hear a plot against the king that there's these two guards that are kind of, you know, you know, that are close to, to King Xerxes and they begin to plot. And he hears about this and he tells Esther. Well, Esther then tells one of the eunuchs and it gets back to the king, you know, and they find out this death threat and it's, you know, validated and they kill those guys. But Mordecai is rewarded in a sense that he's given, you know, the credit for exposing the plot. Well, here the, the, the nemesis comes in. His name is Haman. You know, he's an Agagite, which is a descendant of the Canaanites, you know, which is a tribe that, you know, through, you know, the books we hear that God says to wipe these people out. You know, the, their way of worshiping is very sexual. Their way of worshiping is killing, you know, children, offering them up to God, you know, and they're considered vile. You know, so he's a descendant of that, you know, and um, he does not like the Hebrews. He doesn't like the Jews at all. You know, he basically has a, a deep resentment against them because of what happened. You know, that the Jews had, had killed parts of his family and he wants revenge. So there's this melting pot. You have all these different tribes or different cultures and, and, and people groups kind of in the midst of this city. You know, and they worship a variety of different gods. You know, so, you know, the king is then demanding every, or, you know, Haman puts a decree that, you know, everybody has to kneel before him, you know, and kneel before the king. And Mordecai knows kind of what's going on. And, you know, he doesn't like Haman either. So he refuses to bow, which then just really triggers Haman. And he gets really upset and he gets really angry and he, is just, you know, having these angry thoughts and vicious thoughts, and he goes back to his family, and, you know, he's just fueling the fire, <clears throat> you know, and uh, there's all these different things that are going on in this book, you know, and even though that God's not mentioned, we're going to begin to see how God's plan begins to unfold in everyone's life, you know, that... You know, Haman begins to make this decree that he wants all the Jews to die. So he proposes it in such a way to the king, you know, and some say that he was drunk a lot. You know, not that any of us would ever understand that, that we don't make very good decisions when we're drunk. So Haman's coming before the king, who obviously just threw a six-month party. He's not an alcoholic at all. And he proposes that, you know, on a certain date that, you know, the Jews would be taken out, you know, and he basically rolls, rolls these dice, cast lots, pernin is another word for it, you know, as you're reading through some of this stuff. And he basically rolls the die to see when, you know, all the Jews are going to die, you know, and he gives this decree to the king. The king kind of like, yeah, whatever you want, you know, I don't really care what's going on, you know, and um, so then this plot begins to, you know, they start nailing up stuff that on this certain date, and this is going to happen. And the Jews are getting really nervous, you know. And Mordecai comes to Esther and tells her what's happening because she's kind of locked up in the in the kingdom, and, you know. And um, she doesn't really know. But 
the, the crazy thing is that this beauty contest, basically, the king gets to choose whichever young virgin he wants to make his, his wife. But, you know, there's different elements. You know, they, they basically set them apart and did these baths and oils for months, you know, to, to get their skin soft and get them smelling right. And then they had the choice to pick whatever jewelry they want in the kingdom treasury. You know, so everybody's kind of, you know, going crazy because everybody wants to be the, the next queen. And one of the lines that you read in this, as Esther is doing this, is that she found favor with everyone. Like no one looked at her in a bad way. So, I don't know, the way I grew up, when there's two women that wanted one thing, they will trash talk the other one. You know, and they will cut down and they'll be catty. Just shooting straight here. You know, so the fact that here's this one woman in the group of a bunch of other women that want one goal, and she is finding favor with everybody, that's pretty impressive to me. You know, that the king guards and the, and the eunuchs and the other girls all think like Esther's, you know, an all right chick. You know, so that she's carrying herself in such a way that she's getting along with everybody, which is pretty amazing. Like, we don't even get along with each other, you know, and yet here's these women that are trying to get one common goal is to be the next queen, and yet she is, you know, rising above the rest, you know. Now, we don't know where the other women come from. I guarantee that there's some other Jews, and I guarantee there's some Canaanites, and I guarantee there's some Babylonians, and there's probably all sorts of a mixture in this city that they just got swept up into, you know, the, you know, into being, you know, cattle for one purpose, you know, and as the, the king is choosing his wife, like he's spending a night with each one of these women, you know, so after that, like they're losing their, you know, their virginity, and if the king doesn't want them, then they're going to get put into a harem for whenever he wants to choose. So this is like, you know, everything is taken from these women in this moment, in this competition, in this, you know, process that if they don't get chosen by the king, they're going to basically spend the rest of their lives as a prostitute because everybody's going to know that the king slept with them and the king didn't want them. So other men aren't going to want that because then, you know, their reputations are going to be ruined. So it's very tricky, the things that are kind of taking place right now in you know, and Xerxes chooses Esther, you know, and she rises up as the queen. So when Mordecai is telling her about the plot, you know, she doesn't have really any power, even though she is the queen. She is just basically, you know, the cute chick on this guy's arm. Like she, you know, is property, you know, that she's not like a queen of power. She's a queen of status. You know, so it's important that we realize that she can't just like, yo, hubby, this is stupid. You know, let's fix this. You know, and the women could not come to the king. You know, no one technically could come to the king unless they were summoned. So she would spend time just waiting in her royal bedroom with everything that she desires except her husband. You know, so her husband was probably, you know, spending time with the girls that he didn't marry, we don't really, you know, 100% know. Most likely that's the way it, it, it rolled down there. Solomon had, you know, 300 wives and 700 concubines. It was kind of common for a king to go, 
you know, pretty crazy in, in this way back then. You know, so, you know, they would have the royal court, you know, and she could not come to the king unless she was summoned under the penalty of death. You know, and when Mordecai comes to her and says, you have to go talk to, you know, the king, she's kind of like, my hands are tied. What am I supposed to do? You know, so she petitions Mordecai to pray and that she's going to fast and to let everybody know that, you know, is part of that Hebrew nation, the Jews, that they should be praying to, you know, and she prays and fasts. Now, prayer is mentioned, but God's still not mentioned. You know, and then the the day comes and she decides that here we go. You know, so she gets dressed and dolled up in, in her royal robes and she walks into the court. You know, and this would have made the men very upset. And the king would, would have been like, what are you doing here? You know, and he had the choice to lower his scepter, you know, to give her right of passage. Or he could have basically said, you're just like Vashti. You're like my other wife that was bold and did whatever she wanted to do and could have exiled her and killed her and did whatever he wanted to do. And he would have started the whole process over again and rounded up another bunch of young virgins. And nobody would have batted an eye, you know, that this is just the way it was. Whatever the king wanted to do, that's what happened. So she comes before him, you know, and she's in in this courtyard with all these people around her, you know, and... And she has a, a, a specific message that she wants to tell. But yet, she can't say that in front of everybody. Because she's going to be accusing a certain person who is like a prominent member of his king's court, you know, in front of everybody. So pride and ego would have got involved and she would have been called a liar in front of everybody. So the plan that she came up with is she wants to have a banquet for the king and Haman. So he pulls the two, she pulls the two aside to get them alone. So knowing her husband and knowing how things work, she creates this great banquet, this great spread of food and brings a bunch of alcohol to the occasion, you know, and everybody's just partying and getting drunk, but it's just the three of them. So, you know, as the night progresses, she basically says that, you know, I'm going to tell you what I'm asking for tomorrow. So she kind of softens it a little bit, you know. And um, so Haman, as he's leaving the banquet of just the three of them, you know, he sees Mordecai, and Mordecai doesn't bow to him. Well, he's in, you know, he's got his drunkenness on, so he is already mad at Mordecai. So that just takes him to a whole nother level of pissed off. So he, you know, commands that they basically build this giant stake. You know, it's hundreds of feet in the air, and they're going to impale Mordecai on that in front of everybody. You know, and, you know, he has this thing built, you know, and that night, King Xerxes couldn't sleep for whatever reason. Maybe it was God. Most likely it was. But he can't sleep. So his way of sleep, you know, he gets one of the you know, his chamber guys and, you know, scribes and he says, go get me the, the chronicles and read them to me. You know, it's basically having the, the, the news read to you, you know, and which would put most of us to sleep. So he's laying there listening to this guy, you know, talk about what's been going on in the kingdom. And he tells the story of Mordecai, you know, finding this plot about, you know, 
these two temple guards that are trying to kill him and that they gave Mordecai credit, but then they never rewarded him for it. So the next morning when he gets up, Haman's marching in there because he's going to tell the king about what Mordecai had done and how he didn't bow and how they should kill him because of the decree that they made and he's violating it. But the king proposes a question. You know, and he says, Haman, what should I do when I want to honor somebody? And Haman thinks he's talking about him. So he's like, well, you should give him a royal robe and that you should give him a royal horse and you should parade him around the city and you should give him a royal ring so everybody knows that, you know, this is your guy. And the king is like, that's a great idea. Will you do that for Mordecai? And I can't even imagine what happened inside of this guy. Like, his head probably went, spun around a hundred times, like steam coming out of his ears. Like, he wanted him dead, and probably if he would have spoke first, Mordecai would have been dead, but Xerxes was was about to honor him. So that's tricky, too. But once again, we see how God's hand kind of comes in at the last second and protects God's people. You know, so (laughs) Haman... Everybody knows that Haman doesn't like Mordecai, so he's wandering around the city leading this horse with Mordecai on it, and he's kind of giving the, you know, wave, like, what's up now, you know, and it had to just absolutely just furiate Haman, you know, I in such a way that, like, he was ready to kill everybody, you know. So when he gets done doing that, basically he's got to go to this next banquet. So he's already stirred up, you know, and they have the next banquet and they're getting the food and the alcohol and the king is like, tell me what you want. And she basically lays it out how it is. She's like, there's this, you know, there's this decree and you're, you know, you're trying to murder me. And he's like, what do you mean? Because he did not know that she was Jewish. You know, and he, she basically explains it that, you know, Haman has this plot against me and my people, and that there's this decree that in a few months that basically he's going to want to kill me and I'm your wife. And still at that moment, in front of both of them, she had no idea what he was going to do because, once again, women were just kind of property and that this is, you know, Haman is Xerxes' boy. You know, like, you know, Haman is kind of the second in command of his whole, you know, kingdom and of the city. So he could have very easily said, so what? You know, I'll just get, you know, another hundred virgins and we'll just do this whole equation all over again. And in that moment, you know, God's hands move. You know, and he gets furious at Haman. And he basically takes Haman and he puts him on that stake. So he elevates him in front of everybody and impales him on that stake in you know, and honors Mordecai and honors his wife. Now, he's a Babylonian, and she's a Jew. You know, so this isn't really a normal, you know, marriage that would take place. But, you know, God had positioned this in such a way that that God put Esther in this exact position. Like, that was what, you know, she was called to do. You know, she was had favor. She was, you know, a woman of God and she was put into a worldly situation 
in the midst of this politicians and politics and, and, you know, all these different dramas that are going on in the city. And yet when she sought God and asked for favor and had asked other people to pray for her, that all of a sudden God puts her in this position where she changes the outcomes. Now, the way that it was, you know, back then is that if you made a decree, you know, you couldn't, you know, take that decree away. So they had a decree that all the Jews were going to die on this day, and that didn't change. However, because of the favor that she had, they made a new decree that the Jews would be able to defend themselves. So when that day came, there was like these many many wars, and, and the Jews knew that it was coming, and, and they fought off the other tribes, and they killed certain people, and the people that were, you know, in favor with Haman, you know, all these people were taking a place, and it became, you know, the roles got reversed. You know, and many times in our lives, we, we have these situations that seem like there's this impending doom coming. You know, and in of our own strength, we can't change it. But if we seek God and we get around godly people and we say, hey, will you pray for me? You know, and we pray for God's favor, we pray for God's will. Every single one of us, I would care to say, has had something shift in our lives in a way that we can't have any other explanation except for God moved. You know, and yet we forget this. You know, this bill can't get paid, and this person's sick, and this is happening, and that's happening, and we get freaked out. But yet, every one of us sitting here today is a miracle. You know, I know for me I should be dead, and I know that's true for most of us in this room. You know, and yet God moved, and God loved us enough to pull us out of our darkest of places and put us on this path of a new life. Now, just because we have Jesus and just because we say we're a Christian or just because we're in recovery doesn't mean that crazy things won't happen. Just, you know, that trials and tribulations won't happen, that life won't happen the way life happened before we got here. It's just now we have a different solution. Or before we would drown our sorrows in alcohol and drugs and relationships and food and, and various other ways, you know, Netflix and chill for six months, you know, like I'm just depressed, you know, like, no, now I have a different solution, you know, and it goes beyond just belief. Many of us believed in God, but having faith in him is a totally, totally, totally different story. You know, if we were to go around Utica, we could ask people what they believe, and most of them would say, well, I believe in God, but do we have faith? You know, and in this moment, Esther had faith that was beyond her, that she had to seek supernatural favor, that she had to seek God for the strength to walk into that courtroom in front of her husband, even though it was against the law, that she could have been killed, and yet she did it because she believed in what she was doing. You know, there's going to be times in our walk with the Lord that we're going to be put in, not that situation, but a similar type of situation that I'm afraid to do it. I don't have the strength to do it in my own. I'm going to have to seek, you know, friends to pray for me. I'm going to have to seek God to give me the strength to follow through. Because fear is, you know, one of our number one opponents in life. You know, and once we realize that Jesus walks us through some of our darkest of places, that we can begin to conquer other things over and over and over again. You know, so we see how Esther was a key component in this situation. Now, if you rewind the story of what we were talking about last week and how 
you know, Nehemiah, you know, was also part of the king's, you know, court. He was, you know, he was on the, on the, on the board. And he knew what was happening in Jerusalem and he got this thing inside of him that said, you know what, something's not right. And you know what he did? He prayed about it. And you know what he did? He said, you know what, this is what God's calling me to do. And he went to Xerxes, you know, right after this. You know, it's within, you know, 20 years or so. So most likely Esther was still the queen. Most likely, you know, that they were being honored in that city in a way that you would not think that a Jew would be honored in a Babylonian city. That, you know, there's people of importance in the king's court. There's people of importance that he's married to, you know, that were Jews, you know, and not everybody when the, the exile was kind of over and that Zerubbabel and Ezra took a bunch of them back. Some of them stayed, you know, because they were prominent people in the kingdom. They had good businesses. They had a good life. You know, why should I give up everything to go back there? You know, so it's tricky, you know, it's tricky how, you know, all this stuff, you know, kind of plays out. However, we can see how God's hand is is moving within the midst of it. You know, and we don't always know what's going to happen. We have no idea what's going to happen later today or tomorrow, next week, next month. You know, but we can make our plans, but the Lord orders our steps. You know, and if we hang on too tightly to our plans is when we start to veer off God's plan. You know, and every one of us in here has done it. You know, most of us pre-Jesus were wreaking havoc in our life. You know, but some of us after Jesus have been wreaking havoc in our life. Why? Because I'm pushing my will. I want what I want. You know, and these types of stories says no matter how far and how crazy our lives can be, God can bring restoration. God can heal. God can do a miracle. God can set us free from something that is really this impending doom. Like, if God didn't move in this situation, all the Jews would have been wiped out in Babylon. And who knows that Babylon might have attacked, you know, Jerusalem again. But because of people seeking God, you know, it didn't happen. And our Bible tells us that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. But, you know, many of us have seen the memes. It doesn't mean the weapon wasn't created. It doesn't mean things don't come after us. It doesn't mean that things don't come up against us. What it says is it won't prosper. We will. Because of why? Because I'm awesome? No. Because I'm trying to behave myself today? No. It's because of Jesus. And we need to seek Jesus, and we need to do it his way, and we need his favor on our lives. We need his will in our lives so that we can overcome whatever is set before us. Now, you know, we see that this book is is strange in a sense, that you know, there's a lot of drunkenness going on. There's some sex stuff going on. There's some intermixing going on. And that's not normally what the Bible is saying is a good idea. But God moved in this situation as they were already in it. And he brought around his will in their lives. You know, that, you know, if it would have went a different way, then Hadassah, Esther, would have been, you know, a concubine to the to the king, you know, and and Haman would have killed Mordecai, and Haman would have then wiped out the Jews. But God moved in this situation. So even though the king was a drunk, and most probably all the other men were drunks, and the women were just property, God used a woman 
in this situation where women normally were never used to be a very important piece to change this whole kingdom and this whole story. You know, so it doesn't matter what society says. It doesn't matter what people say. It really only matters what God says. You know, and it's so important that we find our identity in Christ and not what our past has said, not what we have done wrong, not what people say we've done wrong. Because even though we're trying to change, it doesn't mean that family and friends and society says that you're no good. But Jesus looks at us in a completely different way. He looks at us as completely set free. You know, he looks at us that the blood has been shed for us, that when God looks at us, he looks and he sees Jesus that his grace has been given to us in such a way that we could never deserve it, we could never earn it, but Christ died for us because he loved us. You know, and, you know, it's so important that everything that we believe is based on that miracle. Everything that we believe is based on the resurrection of the dead. That Jesus, he lived this sinless life. You know, that could have been a story. You know, oh, some guy, you know, behaved himself. But no, he was killed for our sins. He was put in the ground and then he was resurrected. So that's kind of a supernatural thing that our faith is built on. It's not that just Jesus died for us. It's that Jesus came back to life for us. That death and the grave were completely destroyed in that moment. Sin was completely paid for in that moment. And if we can wrap our minds around the fact that Jesus did that for us, there's nothing in our lives, if we do it God's way, can't happen. And so often we forget that the foundation of our faith is a supernatural miracle. You know, we all need supernatural miracles. Some of you, you know, are away from your kids. Some of you have court stuff. Some of you have this. Some of you have that. Some of you feel like this impending doom is coming. And you know what? We seek God. We find other people and say, hey, will you pray with me? You know, we don't have to do this alone. And so often, you know, in our pre-Jesus or in our crazy days, we did everything in that alone because we wanted to hide what we were doing. But we're not trying to hide anymore. We, we've come into the light. And we have to embrace that light. Otherwise, we slip back into the darkness. We have to get people around us that are loving on us and praying for us and teaching us. Otherwise, if we don't invest in our new life, most likely we end up back going towards our old. And it's so important that we need new people in our lives. And we need to learn about who Jesus is, not just that we go to church. Because I don't know about you, but if I just go to church, I'm screwed. I need a relationship with Jesus that's day in and day out. And I need people around me that believe the same stuff I do because I can have the wrong person telling me the wrong thing on the wrong day and I'll believe them. And I need to have the right people speaking into my life and saying, no, don't do that. Trust this. God's got you. Jesus is working on it. This person's safe. This person's not. And so on and so forth. And Mordecai looked out for Esther because, you know, he was, they were family. But we also need people looking out for us. You know, and as we seek Jesus, we should expect supernatural miracles. Now, that does not mean that I get my way. 
And so often I, I pray for my will to be done, and Jesus is like, that's a bad idea. And they're like, no, I really want it bad. I want it, I want it a lot in Jesus' name. And he's like, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And we're like, no, no, I, I'm praying in Jesus' name. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me in Jesus' name. And, and Jesus is like, no, that's a bad idea. And we get really frustrated. And we get mad and then we do it ourselves and, it, and we get spanked. And, and we're wondering why it hurt. And then we blame God. Like, if you would have done it my way, this wouldn't have happened. And, I, and he's like, I told you not to do it. So it, it wouldn't have happened if you would have listened. You know, there's times that we need to listen to Jesus. Because I don't know about you, but I have a 100% track record of destroying everything I touch. When my will is forced, destruction happens. Pain happens. Chaos happens. Jesus has a, a funny way of taking very broken people that don't have a clue how to live life apart from sin and showing them that there's this whole other life to live if we trust in his ways. And it's not easy because we have to rewrite all the craziness that's in our head that we've been believing for far too long, even though we've said we've believed in God. We've done some crazy stuff that's against God. And you know what he says? He's like, I love you anyway. Come here. I got a purpose and a plan for you. It hasn't changed. You've just been working on your testimony and you're going to help a whole nother demographic of people. I got some stuff for you to do. Trust me. Let's do it this way. And we're like, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but I still want my, what I, I want. And he's like, don't haven't you learned that that's painful? Like, yeah, I did, but now I have you again, remember, so I can get what I want again? And he's like, no, that's not how this works. Trust me and do it my way. Get into your word. Follow the word to the best of your ability. You know, every one of us is going to fall short. Every one of us is going to make mistakes. Every one of us is not going to be perfect. You know what that means? It means that we need Jesus. You know what that means? Is that Jesus is with us. You know what that means? Jesus is going to get, put us in a headlock and say, come here, you're silly. You know, and some of us need a headlock and not to let it let go for a minute because we're stubborn. You know, <clears throat> but what we see in this story is that Haman's pride and ego led to his destruction. And any time that we try to force our will and let our pride and our ego come in, destruction comes. Pride comes before the fall. You know, and as we surrender ourselves to God and we seek his will, Doors will open for us that cannot be opened. And other doors will get shut that we cannot shut on our own. So I just encourage you to just keep pressing in, keep praying, get into your Bible, get around people that are going in the same direction that you are, trying to change your life. You know, you don't have to do this alone. I realize most of us in here have betrayal issues and trust issues as long as our arm, but we have to get new people around us and we have to learn to trust again. And it doesn't mean just jump in with two feet. It means stick your toe in the pond and, and, and take a step. You know, because every one of us needs people. Otherwise, I can't do this in my own strength. I will fail. You know, and why will I fail? Because the Bible tells me I'll fail. The Bible says if I try to do this alone, the devil will consume me. But I can stand back to back with my brother and we can defeat the enemy. But three of us interwoven like a cord can hardly be broke. So the more of us to get interwoven and we're seeking God and we're, we're following Jesus to the best of our ability and we're staying away from sin to the best of our ability and, and when we fall short, we reach out to our friend and says, hold me up. Who knows what can happen? You know, I love that the end of the song that we were singing at the end is that there's an army rising up. There's an army rising up. 
Jesus is moving. If Jesus wasn't moving, we wouldn't be sitting here on a Friday night. There's so many other places that we would be, and it's not in church, listening to stories about Jesus. So if Jesus wasn't moving, we wouldn't be sitting here. Amen? Amen. So we have to realize that he's already at work. We just have to partner with what he's already doing, and we have no idea where we're headed. And that's scary too. And that's why we need to hang on to Jesus with one hand and hang on to our brothers and sisters with an axe. And who knows what is possible if like-minded believers seek God's will together, what could potentially happen in this city, in this state, in the churches in this area, in this country, you know, that we have to do our own part. We have to build the wall in front of our own house. We have to work on ourselves. We have to find people that are going to go to battle with us. We need people that are going to pray for us. We need people that we're going to talk to about how this is really crazy right now because God's talking to me and other people are like, that's silly. They're like, no, I need to t- talk to these other crazy people that God's talking to. And I need to go in this direction when everybody else is telling me to go in that direction. And we're like, that's not working, but this is. And we need to hang on to our brothers and sisters and never let go. Because Jesus has a powerful plan and uses our brokenness, our folly, our sin, to set other people that have come from the same place as we've come from. They will see how we've changed and that they will want what we have. And it's not because I have this great wisdom. It's that I have Jesus to give you. I have this testimony of what Jesus did in my life. That's all I have. I don't have this great wisdom. I don't have all these crazy things. I live by principles in the Bible, and that's why my life changed, and that's why I keep going in this direction is because Jesus continues to show me that he's the best way. And we have to come together with people that are believing that same thing because the wrong person in our ear can lure us the wrong direction, and then we're like, wait a minute, how did I end up here again? It's because I'm listening to the wrong voices. You know, and... And we love those people and we guide those people, but it's so important that we have the right people in our corner because trials and tribulations will come. You know, we will have to go to work in secular arenas. We will have people in our family that are not saved. We will have friends that don't understand our change. But we have to have a few people that are like, you're doing great. Keep going. Like, I feel crazy. You're doing great. Keep going. I feel crazy. You're doing great. Keep going. I feel crazy. You're doing great. Keep going. But I'm crazy. Like, you're crazy, but keep going. (laughs) And all of a sudden, we're like, we look back and we're like, I'm a completely different person. It's only been a little while. And and like, Jesus is already doing all this crazy stuff in me. I feel really crazy now. And it's like, just sit still. (laughs) Just sit still. But, 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 just sit still. Just sit still. We need those people in our quarter that are like pushing us forward and telling us to sit. Pushing us forward and telling us to sit. Pushing us forward and telling us to sit. Why? Because if it's left up to my own devices, I run from everything. I run away from everything. Even things that are good. Like, that's going to be really good. Let me go screw up everything real quick. We need people that are in Christ that says, just sit still. But I feel crazy. Keep going. You know, and who knows what could happen. With very broken people. I'm a crackhead who goes in and out of jail. And today Jesus has done a miracle in my life. Just like he's done a miracle in in our lives. Because he's a miracle working God. And he brings restoration. He brings redemption to the people that cannot be restored. Should not be redeemed. He does miracles in every one of our lives. And we need to represent him to the best of our ability. 
and keep praying for his favor, keep praying for his will, keep praying for his doors to open and let go of our our will to the best of our ability and realize that he has these great things that he has in store for us. We just bow our heads with me. Lord, I just thank you so much. I thank you for your word. I thank you. I thank you so much that you're faithful to us, Lord, that you move in supernatural ways, that you you heal the brokenhearted. You set the captives free. You give us the strength to resist the enemy. You teach us to obey your 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 decrees. You give us the Holy Spirit. You give us power beyond our own. You give us a relationship with, with a loving Savior. And we just are so grateful for that, Lord. We just ask that you would move in our lives. Help us to see already what you've already done. Help us to know that we we got work to do, that we're not going to wake up tomorrow and not have stuff to work on. We're not going to wake up tomorrow and everything's going to be perfect. But you know what? We're farther than we once were. And we need to keep pressing forward and keep trusting you and keep doing what you're asking us to do. Even when we feel crazy, we need to get other crazy people around us that are doing the same stuff we're doing. When the world is telling us to do it a different way, the world is telling us to do it, you know, all these other ways. And it's not working for them, but they want us to follow because they feel guilty because we're changing. And Lord, we have to realize that your plan and your purpose for us is far beyond our understanding. But yet when we hang on to your hand, you'll help help us and you'll make a way where there was no way. So Lord, help us to trust that even if we're in some hard place right now, that you're working on our character and you're breaking off some junk and you're breaking off old habits and you're breaking off old mindsets, you're breaking off old philosophies to teach us what the real truth is. Because even though we've believed, we've done some dumb stuff. And Lord, you need to begin to bring healing into our hearts and help us to love ourselves again so that you can use us in mighty ways in various different places in this city and in our families and in our friends' lives, Lord, that you bring a light so powerful that it it brings everybody to us in such a way that we could never explain apart from Jesus is doing miracles. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen, amen.